So today we're going to open the book of Titus. If you want to go there in your Bible, it's on the right, if you need to know that. Uh, And this is a letter that Paul wrote to Titus, which is convenient, right? It's called Titus. That, That works out. But Titus was a Greek co-worker of Paul. So he wasn't Jewish like a lot of these uh, early Christians were. This was a Gentile. He was a Greek co-worker of Paul. And Paul had sent Titus to the island of Crete to help disciple and lead a group of house churches that had been started there. So Paul sent Titus to go and do something big there. Now, Crete was an interesting place. And this, this is kind of rude and maybe, I don't know, a little racist, I don't know. But back in that day, if you wanted to describe a liar in the Greek culture, in the Greek language, you would call them a Cretan. You've probably heard that before, right? Uh, Crete was known as being unsafe and people of low character, but Paul and Titus loved these people and they stepped out to go and minister there. And it's a place that we might think of as like a Las Vegas, right? A place where uh, sin abounds. Uh, just abounds and there's people of uh, uh, just doing things that maybe are not the best idea to do. But Paul wanted Titus to help lead these people to live a godly and a thriving life in the midst of this wicked culture, a culture that was hard to live for God in. And so bad leaders had gained influence in these house churches. And that was going to be a problem. Like they're already in a, a, a hard culture to live for Christ. And now some bad leaders rise to the top and they gained influence. So Paul sends Titus to set these things straight in these churches. So Paul wrote this short letter to Titus to help him accomplish those tasks, to set out to help fight some of this bad leadership. We'll be paralleling an outline by J.D. Greer as we look through this book of Titus. So let's start at the beginning, right? A good place to start in Titus 1, 1. Says Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. So Paul is encouraging Titus that when God saved us, we're saved to be different. Right? He says, You're saved, you've got uh, you know, Jesus in your heart, you've accepted Jesus, you've repented of your sin. Now that means you should live in a different way. You should live in godliness. See, salvation is not just about delivering you from hell. Salvation is God delivering you to himself, the church, the, the bride of Christ, right? Pushing forward the kingdom of God right Now, it should change who you are in this life. See, what God wants is for you to walk and believe the truth of God that leads to godliness. There's a next step. It's not just get saved and then do whatever you want because you got fire insurance and you're fine. You don't need to worry about it anymore. No, there's a next step where you live and believe. That belief continues and it grows and then it leads to godliness and some changes in your life. You were created in the image of God. And for us to fulfill the reason that we're made, we must reflect that image. That's your purpose, is to reflect the image, like the moon reflects the sun. Reflect that image to the world that we live in. It's a lost and a dying world. So what's the point? Is you were saved to be different. There should changes that need to happen in your life. 
Well, how does, how does the gospel make us different, right? Paul starts to tell us in verse 1. He says, I'm writing this letter to encourage you Christians to remember the truth that leads to godliness, the truth that changes us. Paul digs deeper in the next chapter. If you want to turn to chapter 2, verse 11, and he digs deeper into that difference in our life and how the gospel changes us. It says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That's great, right? Jesus loves me, this I know. We're saved. What's next? Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. So he tells us, look, salvation is good, and that's the start, but it doesn't end there. There's a next step of training us. The grace of God trains us and makes us different people. So we need to renounce the ungodliness and reject the worldly passions so that we can be self-controlled, upright citizens and live godly lives in the culture that we're surrounded by. That's great, right? That's awesome. How do we do that? How does that work? Is it, is it by trying harder and just clenching our fists all the time and, 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 and just making ourselves be good people? Is it studying more Bible facts and theology and knowing all the little, uh, you know, this Greek word means that and, and this person was that person and I can recite the genealogies? Is that what it's about? Is it about more Bible knowledge? Is that how we're being different and upright and godly? No, Paul says the grace of God that saved us is what trains us to be the person he made us to be. That same grace that saved you is the same grace that's going to change you. The same faith you needed to get saved is the same faith you need today to be a different person than you were before. What saved us? What saved us was the gospel. The good news that although we were wicked sinners, although we brought nothing to the table, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, died in our place. There's nothing that we could have done to earn that. Nothing we could do to deserve it or to pay God back at all. It's just grace. It's just grace. It was grace when you got saved and that amazing grace is the grace that's going to help you be different than what your flesh and your body and your personality tell you you should be. It's just grace. Favor that you didn't deserve. And the more that you investigate that grace that saved a wretch like me, the more you're going to be willing and ready to learn to live out a godly life. You never graduate past the gospel. It's all gospel all the time, from the moment you got saved to the moment you reach heaven, and even then, it's all about Jesus and the cross. You only drive your heart deeper. You never graduate past it. You drive your heart deeper into the gospel, looking deeper into the grace of God. It shifts our attention. It changes what we look at. It tells us where it shifts our attention in the next verse. Verse 13. Grace trains us to live godly lives. Waiting for the blessed hope. It tells us what to look for and what to look at. It says, waiting for the blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of the great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Who gave himself. It reminds us that he gave himself for us to redeem us from all unlawlessness 
and then he's going to change us to purify himself, a people for his own possessions, not just people that use uh, words to describe uh, their love and their change, but who are zealous for good works. See, looking deeper into the grace of God focuses our attention first upward, looking forward to that blessed hope. See, here's the thing that we don't always realize is that sin problems always start as worship problems. It's always about what you're worshiping. We are people that worship something, always. So what are you worshiping today? See, the grace of God redirects our worship. It changes us. And when we look at the gospel and we look at what Christ did for us, it's going to change what we worship. Romans 1.23 tells us that when we sin, we give the glory that God deserves to created things, which is so messed up, right? There we got a God that created everything. And instead of giving the glory to God, we give the glory to created things, things that the creator made. How would you feel if, uh, you know, you bake the cake and you're not, you know, really a great baker or anything like that, but you set out to work really hard. You put all the ingredients in, you decorated. It. it was the most beautiful cake ever. And you gave it to somebody and they just talked about how awesome the cake was and never said, thank you. Right. And they never like said, man, I can't believe that you did this. This is awesome. And they just praised the cake itself. Like, wait a minute. This cake didn't do the cake. It didn't just spontaneously get here. I gave you the cake. We worship the created thing rather than the one that created everything. And we give the importance and glory that we're supposed to give to God, we instead give that to other things. Uh, Matt Papa said this, sin is just worship misdirected. Sin is just worship misdirected. So what in your life are you giving more weight to than you give to God? Whatever it is. What do you care about more than you care about God? What do you sacrifice more for than you sacrifice for God? Whatever that is, that glory deserves uh, to go to God. That's sin. And when we look deeper into the grace of the gospel, it redirects our worship back to where it's supposed to go. Paul Tripp says if we worship ourselves into sin, we have to worship ourselves out of sin. So the, 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 the gift and the, and the process of you getting out of this idolatry in our lives and this problem of worshiping the wrong things is to worship the right thing. The great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. That's what God says. Look, if I was going to give you one commandment, there's only one thing I would ever tell you. Here it is. Love me. Love me and everything else will figure itself out. We make Christianity and faith so complicated. But if we would just love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind, everything else would flow out of that. But it's kind of weird, though, to be commanded to love someone, right? Try that with your wife, right? Try that with your kids. I command you to love me. I bet that's going to really work. You're going to get socked in the face. But the gospel shows us all the lovely parts of God and puts them under a microscope. And when we see that kind of love, we cannot help but love him back. See, religion and good works don't do that. We begin to resent the God of religion and good works. No matter how hard we try, you cannot please that God, right? 
No matter how hard you try, you can never be good enough. There's always something else you could do. Legalism doesn't make you love God. It uh, it makes you scared to approach God. It makes you the judge of everyone else because they don't live up to you. You think you're better because you have the rules just right. And you become judgmental. But when we remember that grace is a gift that's available to all and that we didn't earn it and we didn't deserve it, then we begin to be people that want to hand out grace. You got to understand what Jesus did for me. And you got to understand how much he's forgiven me. And then we begin to want to show that grace to other people. But when we rely on religion to make ourselves better, we're always trying to just get better than the person next to us. My dad used to tell me that every time we would hike. We used to hike in, in, uh, you know, in the Appalachian Mountains and, and the Blue Ridge Parkway and different places like that. And there'd be places where there was bears, right? And he always used to tell me, I don't have to run the fastest in the world. I just have to be faster than you, right? And that's how we live our Christian life sometimes. We just, we just gauge ourselves by the people around us. And I don't have to be really what God wants me to be. I just have to be better than the person next to me. But that's not how it works. And the gospel changes us and it redirects us to look at that blessed hope at what Christ did for us. And because Christ forgave us of so much, then we begin to be people that forgive other people. And the grace of God transforms us by looking upward to the blessed hope that we have in Christ. And next, it transforms us because grace pushes us to look backward to the great and sacrificial price that Jesus paid to save us. He gave himself to redeem us. The grace of the gospel restores our gratefulness. Looking backward to the cross and thanking him constantly, remembering constantly who Jesus is and what he did for us. And see, the problem is, is when we become apathetic and we become a people that don't really appreciate what has been done for us, then we don't live a life of gratefulness and thankfulness over Christ did for us, what he did for us. And when we do that, we rob God of the glory that belongs to him. And we convince ourselves that we're self-sufficient and that we've got this and that we're okay. But everything you have is from God. Everything. Every time, every good thing that you have in your life is because of God. Thank him for it. J.D. Greer says that a thankful spirit is not about politeness. It's not just tacking on thank you to the end of everything. It's not about politeness. It's a a life-giving spirit. This will change you. Living a life of gratefulness will change you forever. We're absolutely dependent on God. Every trophy in your cabinet, every raise that you've ever gotten, every time you did something good as a parent, it all depends on God. Give him the glory for it. Give thanks. Give glory where it's due. See, not only were you created by God, by loving God. But after sin broke the relationship between you and God, he made a way to fix it. Isn't that amazing? He created you. He created you in an amazing way. He gave us good gifts. And then sin broke this relationship and we've participated in sin. And then he's the one that fixed it. He made a way. We are not independent. We are dependent. And if you ever want to live the life that you were made to live, If you ever want to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions like this challenges us to do, to live a life that makes a difference, the answer isn't trying harder. 
The answer is falling deeper in love with your Savior. So the gospel points backwards to the fact that we deserve hell and that we can never save ourselves, but Jesus did it for us. And that's the posture of gratefulness that will change our lives. So the grace of God pushes us to look upward to the blessed hope and backwards to the cross. And next, it helps us look forward to him purifying us into the people that he wants us to be. People that are different. The grace of the gospel raises expectations for us, right? And that's what we see from the Old Testament to the New Testament. In the Old Testament, it says, thou shalt not kill. In the New Testament, Jesus says, if you hate your brother, you might as well murder him. That's the same thing. In the Old Testament, it says, don't commit adultery. In the New Testament, it says, you can commit adultery in your heart. It raises expectations. Sometimes we treat uh, that transition for when Jesus uh, and we uh, came and died on the cross and we entered this age of grace, that that means that we can do whatever we want. But no, it raises the expectations that your motives are very important and your heart is very important. And the reasons that you do things make a difference. It raises expectations. Why? Because we're looking forward to the person he's making us into, the people he wants us to be. Ever since the fall of man, all creation has been marching towards that moment where God's going to make all things new, a new heaven, a new earth. And if you've been saved and you've repented of your sin and accepted Jesus Christ, then a new you, a different you. I can't wait till that, right? Absolute sinlessness. No more guilt, no more self-doubt, no more shame, no more messing up. God will make me new. But we don't sit back and wait till then, though, right? We don't wait till, all right, I'll die one day and then God will fix me up nice. We don't wait to change till then. Why? Because he gave us time on this earth. We've got breath in our lungs. And why would not glorify him now? And that's where joy in this life is found, is when we begin to allow God to gradually make changes in us now. Looking forward to being the holy people that are zealous for good works. It says in First uh, John 3, 2, Beloved, we are God's children now. He said, hey, look, don't wait till heaven. God, if you've accepted Christ, you're already his child. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him, purifies himself as pure. It's saying, hey, look, one day we're going to be like Jesus, but don't wait till then. Let's work that, uh, towards that now. Let's work towards being people that please God with our lives now. We're looking upward to who he is, backward to what he's done, and forward into who he's making us to be. And that, if we will dwell on that, that will change us at a heart level. Meditating on these things will change our lives forward to who he is, backwards to what he's done, and uh, excuse me, upward to who he is, backwards to do, uh, what he's done, and forward to who he's making us. Remembering that Jesus is working on me. You remember that song? He's still working on me to make me what I ought to be. Took him just a week to make the moon and the stars, the sun and the earth, and Jupiter and Mars. I love how patient he must be because he's still working on me. 
We've got to be making changes, not to gain our salvation, but to please a God that loves us enough to not make us work for our salvation. Salvation ought to change us. The gospel makes us different. But religion can't change us into who God made us be. False religion is sneaky, though. It's always trying to shift our hearts away from the gospel. It's always trying to redirect our attention. Partially because church is made up of sinners, right? We all tend towards selfishness and we aren't careful. If we aren't careful, we begin to bring those attitudes into the church. So we must be always uh, conscious and aware that false leaders are around and there's people that are going to try and pull our hearts in a direction that pulls it away from the gospel. Titus goes into that. In verse 1, 10, Paul says, For then there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. Those are those that were, uh, you know, Old Testament Christians that were still carrying over those things, our Old Testament, you know, followers of God, still carrying over those things into the New Testament. It said, verse 11, that they must be silenced, the people that are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, since they're upsetting whole families by teaching them shameful gain, what they ought not to teach. See, false teachers are not just preachers and people on staff or, or televangelists or something like that. False teachers can be anyone that leads people away from the truth, away from the mission, away from the grace of the gospel. And here it says, one of the defining characteristics of false teachers are those that are rebellious. Here it says insubordinate. They don't respect authority. The Bible says, hey, look, you need to watch out for those people. It even goes as far as in these verses, those people need to be silenced. We shouldn't listen to that type of person, that type of attitude. Next, it tells us they're empty talkers. That means people that their talk is not constructive. It's, it's useless. It's meaningless talks that push people away from the mission. It also says that they're deceivers trying to convince people into a narrative that's not true. They're trying to pull people over to their side. These types of false teachings hurt families. It hurts communities. When we pull people away from the purpose that God made the church, the purpose that he has left us here for, to further the kingdom of God. And it says these teachers are trying to gain something for themselves, whether it's power or money or influence or notoriety. Over and over, Paul warns the new church, you got to watch out for false teachers that want to distract you. And when these type of false leaders creep into the church, we need to make sure that we reject those type of attitudes of rebelliousness and empty talk and deceit. And we fight those attitudes with the truth, right? We fight it with the truth. When we have a problem, we take it to the right place. If that problem's with a person, we don't talk about them behind their back. We take it right to them, lovingly, sharing the truth with grace and love. He's warning these new Christians, these house churches, that we can't allow division to be in the church. Division is the opposite of unity. Verse 13 describes these false leaders more. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply. I don't think Paul would, like, do real well in our American churches today, right? <laughs> Rebuke them sharply. But this is what the Bible tells us is right. That they, look, here's the purpose, though. That they may be sound in faith, 
It's not just being angry and walking around and, and chewing everybody out. It's for pushing people into what they're supposed to be in the faith. Next, it says not devoting themselves to Jewish myths, things that would distract them, and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Don't get distracted. There's things that are out there that want to keep you from the grace of God that's going to train you up into the, who God wants you to be. Verse 15, it says, to the pure, all things are pure. See, these people were adding things to the gospel. You have got to live by this dietary law that was an Old Testament thing. You got to be circumcised, and it was an Old Testament thing. And uh, they were adding things to the gospel. And he says, to the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Again, he's uh, emphasizing the heart over the rules. But both their minds and their conscience are defiled. Verse 16, and this is a scary verse. It says, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. What's the point here? Religion doesn't produce godliness. Religion makes up empty rules, and it emphasizes adherence to those rules more than actual life change. Religion emphasizes what you do, and you're a good person if you do this, you're a bad person if you do that. You're a good person if you agree with me on this, you're a bad person if you don't uh, agree with me on that. But religion emphasizes what you do more than who you are. Religion uses God for gain, to control people. And God is a means to an end. But the gospel produces gratefulness. uh, Religion produces pride. It says, I should go to heaven because I'm a good person. I'm a church member. I was baptized. I give money. Religion is self-righteous. But the grace of the gospel says, I shouldn't go to heaven. But God made a way for me anyway. And it, it, it reminds you that I'm just a sinner that's saved by grace. I'm not better than anybody else. And the grace that's been offered to me, I need to offer that same grace to everyone. And there's no person that is worse than me. I am a sinner. And that's why we see Paul say, I'm the chiefest of sinners. Was he? I don't think so. But he knew that he was just as guilty as anybody else. And it's not the uh, amount of sin, but it's the presence of sin that makes us sinners. So we're all on the same equal ground. And because of that, we've been offered a great amount of forgiveness. And because we've been forgiven, we need to be forgivers. Religion says, just do this list of things and you'll be okay. But the gospel, the grace of the gospel says you were bought with a price and it calls for full surrender and that you didn't do the thing that was important. Christ already did it, so live for him. And love the Lord your God, heart, soul, and mind. Religion worships events and rules and things and uses God. The grace of the gospel worships God only. And uses things instead. See, dwelling on the grace of God is what changes us. We were saved to be different. It's not religion that changes us. Transformation doesn't happen by waging a culture war and continually just fighting against the culture. Or it doesn't also happen by assimilating uh, assimilating into uh, the culture's way of life. Instead, the Bible commands us to be in the world, but not of the world. Participate in the culture, but with a life that's based on different value systems. 
Living a life that only points towards the saving message of the gospel. No distractions. And this is how we change from a church that grows through church transfer, right? For people just coming from other churches, although that's, you know, that can be great. But we don't just want to do that. We want to see people's lives transformed. And, and, and that's how we're going to do that is by living out the gospel in the culture, but by a different value system. Not being judgmental, but being forgiving and being people that draw people in with the love of Jesus Christ. Not, not denying the truth, not just throwing away all the things that God told us, but having both compassion and conviction, grace and truth. There is a way to do it, and it's a delicate balance, and it's so hard, but we have to fight for it. And that's how we will change people and show them a different way, showing them the way of Jesus. Paul writes this letter to Titus and to us Christians. And he's writing us to remember the truth that leads to godliness. He says, the grace of God that saved us is what trains us to be the person that God made us to be. The same grace that saves us is the same grace that sanctifies us. Well, how will I be the Christian God wants us to be? Well, do you remember that moment where you got down on your knees or whatever your story looked like and you called out to God and you said, I'm sorry that I have sinned. I'm sorry that there's nothing good in me, but I put my faith in Jesus Christ as the only means of salvation and I want to follow you with my life. That same faith that it took to get saved is the same faith that it's going to take for you to stop cussing at work, to stop drinking too much, to stop looking at that stuff on the internet. God, I'm a sinner. I can't do it on my own. I need you to do it for me. It's the same thing, but we make it so complicated. And Paul's telling them, look, there's false teachers are going to come. They're going to try and put all these things on you and make it hard. They're going to try and distract you. They, in uh, business leadership, they talk about uh, that companies always tend towards complexity. And you've probably seen that. Longer a company is, the more meetings they set up, the more systems they have, the more things that just bear it down and it ceases to become agile. And then you have a company that's huge like Kodak, right? That goes out of business because they don't see that digital cameras are coming, right? They don't get it. And they, and they double down on all those things because they, they became solidified. And we add things to it. We always do. But we can't add things to the gospel. It's too big. It's too important. There's people out there in our community that depend on the fact that we know the most important thing and we follow it with our lives. He says the grace that saved us is what trains us to be the person that God made us to be. So look upward to who he is and look backward to what he has done and forward into who he's making us and dwell on that every day and that will change us at the heart level. The grace of the gospel redirects our worship. It reminds us who God is. The grace of the gospel restores our gratefulness. It reminds us what he's done for us. The grace of the gospel raises expectations into who he's making us to be. And the grace of the gospel fights our tendencies to drift towards false religion. Church, we were saved to be different. With every head's bowed and eyes closed. The band's going to come. Once again, the 
Bible forces us to look at our hearts, to look at our priorities, to look at our schedules and what we find important. And it challenges us to hold them up to the light of the gospel. Are the things that I give the most weight are the things that I give the most importance in my life actually the most important things when we look at it in the view of eternity? Maybe you've been cold in your faith for a while. Maybe it's even been years. Maybe you've been kind of dead in your faith. Your heart's been a heart of stone. You might say, well, Pastor Phil, give me, give me some tips on how to fix that. Give me this list of things to do so that I can get that fire back in my heart and that passion for Jesus. Same faith that saved you, it's the same faith that sanctifies you. you. You know what you need to do. Remember what Christ has done for you. Dwell on it. Find ways that excite that passion in you and remind you of what Christ did for you. Bible's going to be part of that. Reading your Bible. Prayer's going to be part of that. Talking to God. Service is probably going to be part of that. Going out and, going out and handing out that forgiveness and seeing the life change in other people. But it's not a formula. It's not A plus B equals C. Go back. Go back to who you were without Christ. What he gave you. And what he calls you to be. Maybe you're here today and you have not yet accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. Maybe you have been relying on works and good deeds and church membership or baptism. Obviously, good works are good and, and church membership is great and, and baptism is something that God commands us to do after salvation. Those are all good things, but when we get it out of order and the, the priority isn't right, then we mess it up. You need to realize that you're a sinner. You need to remember that you're a sinner. We all are. You might say, well, that's a downer. No, it's great news. Look, you can't do it on your own. You need help. Stop trying to do it on your own. You won't make it. That's why you're frustrated. That's why you're depressed. You're trying to do things on your own. When you were made to live, leaning on God, you're a sinner. 2,000 years ago, God in the flesh made a way. He fixed our problem. Romans 5, 8 says that God commended his love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus in my place. That's the gospel. I was a sinner. I didn't deserve heaven. Christ made a way for me to get to God. Innocent person died for all of us guilty people. The Bible says in Romans 10, 13 that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's not a, just a, a magic prayer. It's a 
turning around. The Bible calls that repentance. Letting go of all the things that you're holding on to and putting your faith in what Jesus did on the cross is the only means of salvation. You can call out to God. The words aren't important. You can come up with the, the whole thing yourself. If God's working on your heart, I challenge you to call out to him right now. Heavenly Father, we love you. God, I pray that you would help us to continue to bathe our hearts in the gospel. The good news that Jesus Christ died in our place, that we didn't deserve it. In fact, we deserved hell. My sin was great. Your grace was greater. God, thank you that there is no one in this room, no one on this earth who was ever too far away that your grace can't reach them. Thank you for forgiving us over and over and over and over and over and over again. Forgive us when we've taken our eyes off of you. Forgive us when we've taken you for granted. Forgive us when we've added things to the gospel. Forgive us when our priorities were all out of whack. Forgive us when we allow our selfishness to rule our lives. We cease to hand out grace and forgiveness like you gave to us. God, help us to dwell daily on who you are on what you've done for us and who you're making us to be. In your name we pray.